listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you've provided this time together in Jesus Christ. Father, we know there are no accidents in your kingdom. We're here together tonight by your divine appointment. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to open your word to our hearts and our lives to your word, that we might in all these things grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Father, we would ask you just to send your Holy Spirit to make this time very special for all of us. In Jesus Christ, amen. First Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kyrie, and just to refresh your memory, we had this. <laughs> I, I, I'm really proud of myself. I haven't actually listened to the tape, but I think I was so remarkably well-behaved with all the foolishness with the Philistines. I, I, uh, I think the, the previous few chapters were, were these uh, with the, <laughs> the offerings of the Philistines to offset the problems of the ark. I think it's one of the funniest passages in the Scripture. It's hard not to, to work that over. But uh, in any case, we behaved ourselves nominally fairly well, I think, for us. But chapter 7, uh, verse 1, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord, brought it unto the house of Abinadab on the hill, and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kiriath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Twenty years, we're going to find out, you know, we're going to come to the place shortly where David deals with that, and uh, there's some interesting lessons from that. But this is the nominal location for it for some time. Verse 3, Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, and put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and served the Lord only. Balaam and Ashtaroth, idols. Baal was a name for Mars, and Ashtaroth for Venus both in the pagan idolatry sense, but also in the planetary sense. And we've talked about that. And uh, a footnote for yourself, if you haven't uh, reviewed it, you might enjoy reviewing the notes on Joshua 10 in the long day of Joshua, which I facetiously call martial arts in the Battle of Beth Horon. Okay. But uh, the planet Mars and its interference with the orbit of the Earth and so forth. Anyway, Balaam and Ashtaroth. Verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzvah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. We're going to notice, I might just alert you, notice Samuel. As we learn more about Samuel, you'll discover that he teaches us that prayer is a big part of his ministry. Big part of his ministry. Very often we treat it as a cliche or an idiom or a footnote to other things. Wrong. Samuel is a real man of the Lord. He's got his problems with his sons, but he's a real man of the Lord. And he, um, but it's interesting that prayer is a big part of that. Something that uh, we all uh, need to dwell on. And uh, but you'll notice all the way through here, one of the commitments he makes to Israel that Israel, uh, with all their other problems, hold dearly, is that he he uh, commits to not cease praying for them. Verse 6, And he gathered together to Mitzvah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, There we have sinned against the Lord. And, ju and Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mitzvah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together in Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a bird offering, holy unto the Lord. Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. He was the right one to offer an offering for the Lord. We're going to find a little later that Saul, since Samuel's a little late, doesn't show up, Saul offers it. And uh, that wasn't the program. It was Samuel's role and appropriate duty, both priestly and as a prophet. He has several roles here. Anyway, here he offers it, and the Lord heard him. Verse 10, And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and routed them, and they were smitten before Israel. Interesting. Philistines were a very formidable force, very well organized. They also had a major advantage. They had a monopoly on iron. Uh, they, they had, in those days, that was everybody else had weapons of bronze, which has a, what is it, lower rock, low hardness? Anyway, a, a softer rating. And the iron was a big deal. And so for a while, at least, the Philistines were able to monopolize that technology. And as you, if, you, if you're a student of military history at all, it takes a very little advantage to have a deci decisive effect. And so the Philistines were a formidable, fearsome uh, enemy. But <laughs> when the Lord's on your side, that sort of eclipses any other technology. Right? And so... Uh, um, it's interesting that uh, a mere thunderstorm shook them up a bit. I have no idea what kind of thunderstorm that was, but if you've got a well-organized fighting force with superior weapons and so forth, it's, they're not the kind of people that would be normally intimidated by a thunderstorm. So it must have been, behind the text, it must have been quite a thunderstorm. It doesn't take much imagination to visualize uh, it being pretty hairy, and, and uh, obviously they, they uh, lost the day. Verse 11, And the men of Israel went uh, out of Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, smote them until they came to Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And Ebenezer means the stone of help. Straightforward enough. So the Philistines were, uh, by the way, Ebenezer's got nothing to do with Scrooge. Okay, I just thought I'd point that out. Um, although Dickens apparently used that meaning. You see, there is a, if you understand what Ebenezer means, you understand why Charles Dickens chose that name for Scrooge. Typical Dickens kind of ellipsis here. But anyway, stone of help, right? Stone hearted, see? Yeah. Okay, uh, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the border of Israel. That is for a while. <laughs> and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Now, don't be confused. The days of Samuel are going to come to an end. Samuel doesn't, but his days do, because he's going to pass the baton to Saul shortly. So you need to understand the leadership shifted. And under Saul, there were some ups and downs, as you well know. But okay, Samuel, Samuel's a good guy. Samuel does all in all. He does pretty, pretty well. There's some indication that he spent too much time in the ministry and not enough in his family because his sons were a mess. And it's interesting to notice that that was the same story with his predecessor, Eli. Remember? Seems to be an occupational hazard. We all could take notes of that. All could take note of that. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. 
from Ekron even unto Gath and their borders, did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah and judged Israel in all those places. He's like a circuit judge. He is a judge. He's acting as a judge. He's acting as a priest. He's acting as a prophet. And, uh, and he's like a, what we would call a circuit judge in that sense. Verse 17, And his return was unto Ramah, where was his, there was his house, and there he judged Israel, Israel <coughs> excuse me, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. Now, chapter 8 through 15 is the next sort of section that deals with the rise of Saul. And uh, Ray, there's a lot of interesting lessons here. We want to try to understand as best we can Saul. And we'll try to understand as best we can up to 15. From there on, it gets complicated. Becomes, he becomes a fairly dark, shadowy figure with his paranoia about David. But uh, even prior to all of that, uh, it's interesting to try to glean what we can, the lessons from his life. So uh, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Joel means uh, uh, that uh, Yahweh is God, or Jehovah is God. And Abijah means uh, Yahweh, or Jehovah, is my father. That's what the names mean. Understandable, named by Samuel. That was his... Uh, his hope that they would be God-fearing sons. And he made them judges. Uh, and uh, they were judges in Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is quite a bit to the south, obviously. And the sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after money and took bribes and perverted justice. Brief verse, harboring lots of tragedy. You can imagine the grief that uh, Samuel felt from all of that, plus its impact on the future of Israel, as we'll see shortly. It's not clear, by the way, to me, I haven't done a lot of research, why they're judging in Beersheba. It's about 48 miles south of Jerusalem, and, uh, and um, Samuel's uh, home is to the north. So in any case, it is what it is. In verse 3, And the sons walked not in his ways, and turned aside after money, took bribes, for justice. It intrigues me that it's the same occupational hazard, so to speak, that Eli faced with his sons, where they perverted their office. And all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. The elders of Israel, begging for a king. There are three reasons, at least, maybe more. One of the reasons, of course, is the, corruptions of, the corruption of Samuel's sons. See, if, if, if Samuel's sons had been more God-fearing and showed the right kind of leadership, there may have been may have been more difficult for, for uh, them to want to change here. Second is their desire to pattern themselves after other nations. That's always a mistake. God's ways are not our ways, and when we attempt to conform to the ways of the world, that in general can displease what God is after, especially where he's revealed it to us otherwise. So their desire of a pattern of the, of the neighboring. They also needed the military. They felt they needed a military commander because here they have all. They're surrounded by enemies, and and the, the, that desire for military leadership is something else that will uh, surface here as we go, and uh, that'll show up. I think about verse twenty. Yeah, in verse twenty will give you that other tone to the thing. So three reasons at least. Now. Um, 
the idea, one of the things we're going to talk about as we go here, the idea of having a king of Israel is not new. These elders did not invent it. The idea of a king for Israel is embodied in the Torah. In Deuteronomy 17, there are rules. In Genesis 49, Jacob predicted that there would be a king out of which tribe? Tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10 and so forth. So the idea of a king, and we're going to also, when we get to it here, also talk about the, the not only was a king prophesied for Israel, but the specific king was prophesied in Ruth chapter 4. Who was going to be the king of Israel? David. So they're asking for a king. It's not as if God says, okay, if you want one so badly, I'll give you a king. I mean, I've often had that sort of tone presented wrong. Their problem is not that there's a king. Their problem is one of attitude and one of timing. One of attitude and one of timing. And that's often true in our lives. Something we may want is something God wants for you in his time. Often something that uh, you might want, God wants to give you, but is encumbered by our attitude. So two of the lessons here. See, they're demanding a king is not the problem. They're going to get a king anyway, whether they know it or not, from the, from the house of Jesse. And that's not new information. That's back if you do your homework through the rest of it. We'll give you some verses as we go along here. Um, that was in God's plan. But in the way they're handling it here, they're rejecting God. God will make that clear. Samuel's upset with them for one reason. God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Here's a case where they're asking for something that God was ultimately going to give them, but they're handling it in such a way that it becomes an act of rebellion. Isn't that true of life? It's not what you do, it's the attitude. You see? Jesus deals with that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've got the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Terrific. Jesus says, hey, that's not the half of it. And he reinterprets Exodus 20 in terms of the heart, the attitude. Said you're not you're not supposed to murder. I say if you're angry with your brother, it's attitude. You should not commit adultery. Fine. You even dwell on lust. Hey, that's you've done it already in your heart, and so forth. And he goes through that. The, the, the heavy, heavy, heavy. The seven amounts, heavy stuff, because it reaches behind the form, into the substance, behind our conduct to our attitude. That's the real issue. And what's wrong here in Israel is their attitude. There's always something wrong when they're trying to tell God what to do. Huh? Like Peter said, not so, Lord. That's an oxymoron, I think, isn't it? Huh? Self-contradictory phrase. Make us a king to judge us like other nations. Verse 6, but the king displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. See, Samuel was the judge. He was the leader of the people. He was not only the prophet and the priest, he was also the judge. That is the leader. And one thing, to, to give this, this whole passage tone, you really need to have gone through the book of Judges to get a feeling for the time. And uh, Samuel is probably the best judge they'd seen in a long time, but still they're dissatisfied. So Samuel feels a sense of personal rejection here, certainly. But he, of course, takes it to the Lord. And verse 7, the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in, the, in all that they say unto thee. Now, Samuel, you better be listening. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See, the real problem, the root problem, 
isn't the form of government. The root problem isn't the administrative structure. The root problem is that they are rejecting the lordship of God himself. What's my authority? Verse 7. God says so. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king who shall reign over them. Okay? What God, what God is saying is, don't sweat it, Samuel. They're going to get what they deserve. You see? I mean, they want a king? Warn them. Let them know what they're up against. And he, <laughs> in the next uh, eight verses or so, uh, he's going to lay out what a king means. That doesn't slow them down, but at least it lets them be forewarned. And those of you that are making notes, uh, you could, this is not a bad place to uh, notice Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15. There's rules for a king. So this is anticipated in the Torah. This is not a, an afterthought. Okay. The next few verses we could call the price of kinship. Kingship, that is. Okay. Verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people who asked him for a king. Ask him of him a king. He said, this will be the manner of the king who shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself captains over the thousands, captains over the fifties, and he will set them to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. He's saying to them, hey guys, who do you think is going to pay the overhead? Okay. Goes on. He's not even going to draft the, the, the men for the military and to plow the fields and so forth. He's going to draft the girls. You will take your daughters to be perfumers and to be cooks and to be bakers. So in other words, he's going to pick your choice daughters or to staff his, his, uh, his needs. More than that, he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them. By the way, when the king goes through to pick his, he doesn't pick, you know, class C, D, E, you know, it's usually the A-plus ones. Hey, that's, that's the only ones fit for a king, right? He will take your fields, your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take, and he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your choicest young men and your asses and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king whom ye shall have chosen and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Interesting. So Samuel lays it on the line. Do you think they were impressed? People never listen, do they? Okay. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. Then we also, that we also may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
So here we have perhaps one of the first evidences of what we call peer pressure. Huh? You thought it was just in high school, didn't you? They wanted to be like other nations. And where did it lead? Trouble. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and reported them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. Okay. Now this raises an interesting question. If we were having a written quiz, I'd have you take out a piece of paper, and your question is, um, was it God's will for Israel to have a king? Well, it's complicated, isn't it? This leads to a discussion of at least... You'll often hear of three kinds of wills. There's the sovereign will of God, and that's what God decrees that come to pass. That includes everything. By definition, doesn't it? His, his sovereign will is irresistible and immutable. Now, this is not fatalism because God is involved and cares what happens to you. So there's a difference. It's not fatalism. But God, what God decrees, he decrees. That's a sovereign will. That's sort of a big, big circle, okay? Now, inside that big circle, you could draw a smaller circle and call it his perfect or perceptive will. That's what he prefers or prescribes for you. Where would you find that? Well, you could try Exodus 20, for one thing. His ten suggestions. And, of course, there's other things that he reveals. There are a lot of things that by reading your Bible, you don't have to pray about. You know what God wants, right? When you're confronted with a major temptation, a major sin, you don't have to pray about that in the sense of knowing what's right and wrong. You may pray for some help and strength and so forth, but my point is there are places in life where his will is very clear. And, of course, the one, the other one that gives us a lot of difficulty is when we try to perceive what is God's best will for us. That leads to a third area, sort of between the two. His permissive will. His permissive will. Often, we live our, in fact, probably most of our lives, we're ensconced in God's second best for us. Boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the spiritual maturity to require ourselves to stay in God's first choice for us. But we won't do that. We wander into what I'll call his second best, or third or fourth, what have you. <laughs> Permissive will. That's what God permits even when it's not in conformity to his revealed or his prescribed will. God will permit sin. Does he want you to sin? Will he permit you to sin? Yeah. Even though it's not in keeping to what he prefers. First John 2, 1, for those of you that want to back some of this up with something. So the question is, okay, what we're dealing with here then is not God's perfect will for Israel, is it? That's what we, get, we seem to be dealing with here, something that's his permissive will. Hey, they want a king? He will permit them to have a king. Now, he doesn't necessarily shield them from the implications of that king. He will intervene from time to time, but the point is he you know, they're going, to get, they're going to get what they deserve. But let's not get confused, because I, I guess I'm maybe overreacting, but I've, I, I've had it so often taught, that the, you get the feeling, many people get the feeling, that Saul was like an afterthought. 
that uh, they, Israel asked for it, so God reluctantly gave him a king. No. Saul, there was a timing and attitude issue, as I've mentioned, but the fact that there was ultimately a king in Israel was foreordained. And where do you find that? Genesis 49.10, when Jacob predicts, does his prophecies over the 12, of his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. He predicts that the tribe of Judah would be the ruler in Israel. Uh, Numbers 24.17 and Deuteronomy 17 deals with this issue. My favorite is Ruth chapter 4, because when Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, restores, the, by, by his act of redemption, restores the land to Naomi and takes a Gentile bride, Ruth, to wife, he is acting as a type, a type of Jesus Christ. But the point is, is as they celebrate that whole event, they propose a toast. says, may your house be like Perez. Sounds great until you read the story in Genesis and discover Perez was the illegitimate offspring from the incident between Tamar and Judah. Grizzly story. What do you mean your house is going to be like Paris? Then it gives you a genealogy. And if you do your Levitical homework, you know that it takes the tenth generation after an illegitimate son for inheritance. And it turns out if you count Perez, the tenth generation is a guy by the name of David. So hidden in the, in the book of Ruth, which is in the time of the judges, before all this is happening, is the prediction that uh, uh, David would be the king. So it's not a result of Saul. It's just that Saul is a gap filler because Israel insisted upon it. That's the way I would tend to view it. So their problem is strictly one of timing and one of attitude. Okay. I think we've covered that pretty well. So Israel gets what they ask for. Israel gets what they deserve, chapter 9. Um, by the way, a couple other comments. Uh, believers are always in God's sovereign will. What's my authority? Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. You may be in a sovereign will, but out of his perceptive will. That is disobedient. Now, if you're out of his perceptive will, you are alone responsible for your actions. Okay. And uh, God may permit it, but uh, uh, but, he, and, but he, he'll permit it, but he's not the author of evil. He just allows it for, to work, for its working out in our lives. So you can run with that and study that. It's a tangent worth pursuing. Chapter 9. This is where Israel gets her king. We're going to discover there's two anointings, a private one and a public one. And... Um, we're also going to notice as we go through chapter 9 that God's sovereignty is very visible. So recognize that on the one hand, they wanted the king, so he's letting them have it. But he also is very much organizing the subtle events that are involved here. So we'll be very sensitive to the fact that, that uh, the sovereignty of God is very visible. Chapter 9, verse 1, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a, a mighty man of power. You need, to review, you need to view Kish, as probably many of the men were, like a feudal lord. Bear in mind, they did not have a mark, monarchy or central government. They, this is an outgrowth of the time of the judges. So uh, Kish is a like a feudal lord. And... Uh, his home is in Gibeah, which is about three miles north of Jerusalem. And um, God has some things happen here. He has some donkeys get lost. 
And uh, anyway, uh, Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and handsome. And there was not among the children of Israel a more handsome person than he, for his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. So uh, you get the picture right away. He's the kind of guy that, as in the flesh, you'd pick as a king. Head and shoulders above everyone else, literally. Makes you wonder what Goliath is all about. Anyway, get back to this. Uh, verse uh, 3, And the asses of Kish, uh, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul's son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise and go seek the asses. I'm going to suggest to you those asses were not lost. God would diverted them for his purpose. It's interesting. We're going to discover, if you watch this story carefully, you begin to realize how God uses events that to you and I seem trivial or incidental. And I, my suspicion, and I know for sure that there's nothing trivial in the Scripture. And it doesn't take much extension from that theory that there's probably nothing trivial in your life or mine. We have probably no capacity to put things in real perspective yet. So it's interesting. Anyway, these three donkeys are lost, and they pass through the hill, uh, and so Saul and servant, they pass through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of uh, uh, Shalisha, and he found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, and he found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and become anxious for us. He said to them, Behold, now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. So now let us go there, and perhaps he can show us our way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, now, as, he, as I read this, it's a dialogue. See, the first, verse 5 is what Saul said, and verse 6 is what the servant said, and then verse 7, Saul says to his servant, But if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring the man of God. What have we? The servant answered uh, Saul and said again, Behold, I have here at hand a fourth part of a shekel of silver. This will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Very interesting. First of all, these donkeys happened to be lost. And Saul and his servant happened on their journeys to be in the city where Samuel is. And it just happened that the servant carried with him an adequate honorarium for the occasion. It's interesting that uh, uh, how this... Uh, uh, I personally view this very clearly as God orchestrating here. As the rabbis say, there's uh, coincidence is not a kosher word. Verse 9. Previously in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spoke, Come and let us go to the seer. And he that is now called the prophet was formerly called a seer. That's just a linguistic issue that there was a, sometime a distinction. There, is, there isn't at this point. We're speaking of a prophet. Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found uh, young maidens going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered him and said, He is. Behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city. For there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as ye are come into the city, ye shall immediately find him before he goeth up to the high place to eat. And the people will not eat until he comes, because he doth bless the sacrifice. And afterwards they eat that are bidden. Now therefore, get up, for about this time ye shall find him. 
And they went up to the city, and when they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out toward them uh, to go to the high place. It's interesting. A few comments, let's go a little further. Um, I might mention the high place. The Hebrew word is Bama. It is an elevated place of worship. But this was also a Canaanite custom. Until the temple was built, it was very normal for them to uh, celebrate on, on the high place. But unfortunately, this becomes a basis for the introduction of idolatry from the pagan customs later. So these high, in 1 Kings 11 and 12 and elsewhere, you'll see the use of the high places was prohibited after the temple later on because these high places were also associated with groves and, and uh, pagan rituals from the Canaanite civilizations. So you'd be alert to that as we go. But, um, okay. So this is the, so they're going to run into Samuel. Verse 15, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people, Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. It's interesting he uses the term captain, not king. A ruler. A ruler indeed. But not king. The throne belongs to the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin. So he'll reign over the people indeed. Okay, verse 18. Then Saul drew near to Samuel at the gate, and he said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered, Saul. <laughs> That's got to be interesting. <laughs> How'd you know? Read my name tag? What's it? Saul. He said, I am the seer. Go up before me into the high place, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go and tell thee all that is in thine heart. Then as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and all thy father's house? I'd love to see what the expression on Saul's face was at that point, you know. I mean, <laughs> there it is. Lay it all out, Samuel. <laughs> He calls him by name, tells him what his errand was, and says, by the way, don't sweat it, your asses are found. And Saul said, how'd you know? I mean, you know. But he goes on to give Saul something to mull over. On whom is the desire of all Israel? Is it not on thee and all thy father's house? Saul's got to wonder what that's about, because he has no inkling of what's coming. I would imagine. Verse 21, and Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then speakest thou so to me? And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor, made them sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, set it by thee. And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon it and set it before Saul. In other words, he gets the big helping, you see. And Samuel said, Behold that which is left. Set it before thee, and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. That was a very customary way of honoring the guest, is giving us a, a larger portion. And uh, Saul has to be wondering what is going on. Verse 25, And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel talked with Saul upon the top of the house. And they arose early, and it came to pass 
about the dawn of the day, that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, and he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on. But thou, stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Interesting. Interesting situation. Chapter 10. This is where he gets privately anointed. Don't be confused because there's a public anointing also. But Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil, poured it upon his head, and kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at uh, Zelda. And they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found, and lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses, and sorrow after you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go forward from there, and thou shalt come to the oak of Tabor, and there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet thee, and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass that when thou art come there to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a timbrel and a flute and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Wow. <laughs> wonder what was going on in Saul's mind. This is, this is quite an encounter. Huh? And let it be, when these signs are come to thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so. When he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And unto all those signs, all those signs came to pass that day. Interesting stuff. There's three, three signs are established here to authenticate for Saul Samuel's authority. Otherwise, Saul thinks, gee, this is very, very encouraging. We've got some kind of nut on my hands here. Right? No, three signs. He'll encounter these two men reporting that the donkeys have been found. That's got to be impressive. Then he encounters three men going to Bethel with the goats and the loaves of bread and the wine. And the third sign is the encounter with these companies of prophets that are singing with their musical accompaniment. Now, incidentally, some, some um, uh, uh, people try to link this with a school of prophets that were instituted by Samuel. It's mentioned in, in uh, chapter 19. Verse 9 uh, deserves some comment here about God giving him another heart. And the actual Hebrew says he changed him and gave him another heart. So some people, as they study Saul, visualize a regenerate man that's living a carnal life. Now that can be mixing a lot of metaphors, and I wouldn't press it. I just suggest it as a possibility for you to think about. As you look at Saul, he's obviously ordained of God. He has a changed heart described here, which is the classical definition of our regeneration theologically. And yet, clearly, as we read his life, we realize that he, uh, he really blows it. 
and uh, he's not in fellowship, especially later on. So that's... Uh, Anyway, all these signs come to pass, verse 9, verse 10. And when they came there to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass when all that knew him previously saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And there's some scholars believe that's almost a derogatory remark. In other words, that he's going off as thing. That's speculation on the part of some of the experts. Anyway, verse 12, one of the same place answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore it came proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had ceased prophesying, he came to the high place, and Saul's uncle said unto him and his, to his servant, where went ye? And he said, to seek the asses. And when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle, tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. <laughs> Well, you sort of had to be there. <laughs> no, Saul said to his uh, uncle, he told us plainly that the asses were found. He didn't lie. He just left it a little incomplete. But of the matter of the kingdom <laughs> of which Samuel spoke, he told him not. That's probably wise. It might not quite have been the right time. You may have read... Uh, late Genesis there where Joseph shot his mouth off about his dreams. It didn't go over too well with his, his uh, peer group. So, so in any case, uh, Saul, Saul holds his peace and doesn't get into it. So <laughs> kind of an interesting situation. He told us about that the donkeys had been found. The fact that I'm going to be the next king of, uh, of Israel, he didn't get into. I mean, that, how important could it be? Okay. Now we get into the public presentation of Saul. The rest of this chapter. Verse 17, Saul called the people together unto the Lord to Mitzpah. And he said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of the kingdoms, and of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God. See, Samuel doesn't mess around. He's going to lay this on him, but he's going to get his... his, his uh, um, points in here up front. And ye have, uh, verse 19, And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of uh, Metri was taken, and, when, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. It's interesting that they're casting lots. It's confirmed by lot. It's interesting they used lots a lot. That's the way they selected the scapegoat, if you recall. Leviticus 16 deals with the scapegoat, verses 7 to 10. When Joshua finishes the conquest of the land, they divide the land among the tribes, by lot. The guilt or innocence of a criminal was often uh, determined by lot. That's in Joshua chapter 7, and it's also in Jonah chapter 1. If you recall the incident with Jonah aboard the ship, they cast lots to figure out who was causing all these problems. God controls the lot. 
Proverbs 16.33 is one of your things. He, the, the, the lot is cast on that, but God controls the lot. He, he, he controls the decision. So you can do all the stochastic modeling and random walk analysis you like. God controls chance. Kind of a funny ellipsis here because the evolutionists like to attribute the creation to, and the evolution to chance. One approach to that is, is fine, who controls chance? Proverbs 16.33 says, God, hard to argue with. But, uh, but of course, most scientists today that are informed have to reject evolution because of recent discoveries. There's no way you can have biogenesis after understanding what, what they discovered in the late 50s with the, the DNA molecule. It's absolutely absurd. And um, anyway, we'll get off on that. Back, back to Sam, back to Sam. Now, since Pentecost, you and I have exchanged determining choices from the lot, casting a lot, to what? Holy Spirit, you betcha. Absolutely right. And uh, authorities are there, Romans 8.14 and uh, Galatians 5.18 for starters. There's lots of them, but that's a couple you could nail it to if you want. Okay. Now it's interesting, so they look for uh, a Saul, he can't be found. It's interesting. The last thing I would think of Saul is that he's shy. But in any case, verse 22, Therefore they inquired of the Lord further if the man should be should yet come here. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hidden himself among the baggage. I don't know if he's shy or just making an entrance. But in any case, verse 23, He ran and he fetched him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord has chosen. See, it's interesting. He is presented as the one chosen of the Lord. So while on the one hand it was not God's perfect will for them to have a king now, he yields to their request of giving them a king, and he chooses, so in that sense, Saul was chosen. Interesting. And there was none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. And Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in the book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But certain worthless fellows said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Interesting that Saul, right up front, has his followers, has his adversaries. But he shows some wisdom here. He doesn't deal with it then. He holds his peace. There's a time to deal with that. And uh, this wasn't the time. So Gibeah will turn. Uh, it's about three miles north of Jerusalem. It'll serve as the first capital of the monarchy. Okay, in chapter 11, we're going to have three things. Israel's going to unite behind their king. They're going to organize their military. And Saul will gain acceptance by Israel. We'll have the siege of Jabesh Gilead. Okay, chapter 11. When Nahash the Ammonite came up, Nahash is the commander of the Ammonites. The word Nahash, by the way, means serpent. Kind of a real grabber label there. When Nahash came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. Now, we're trying, they're trying to determine peace. They're surrounded by these Ammonites, and they want to make a deal. <laughs> Nahash the Ammonite answered them, 
On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach among all Israel. In other words, give me your right eye and we'll call it square. Kind of. <laughs> now that's worse than it sounds because the traditional fighting style was that your left eye was behind your shield. So if you didn't have your right eye, you had a real problem fighting. Small point, but I thought it should. Really doesn't help your depth perception very well either. So, so the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messages unto all the borders of Israel. And then if there are no man to save us, we will come out to thee. And I don't quite understand this. They're saying, give us seven days to think about it. And if we can't organize their defenses, then we'll give in. I mean, I, I don't know why Nash would agree to that, but he does. And um, verse 4, then, the, then came the messengers to the Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, what aileth the people if they weep? And they told him, the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings, and his anger was kindled, kindled greatly. So this is his chance. Now there's some other background that you might want to know. Saul may owe his very existence to Jabesh Gilead. Uh, those of you that uh, may remember from Judges chapter 20 and 21 of the Benjamite War, we won't go into it all tonight because it's sort of incidental, but uh, this is where the Israelites swore that none of them shall give their daughter to a Benjamite in marriage because of the, those events. Judges 21. There's about three verses in there that deal with that. So later, in order to provide wives for the men that survived the conflict, 400 virgins were captured from Jabesh Gilead. And what's the tribe involved? Benjamin. Where did the wives come from? Jabesh Gilead. It's very probable that Saul was the result of one of those marriages. So Jabesh Gilead may have an emotional link to Saul that isn't obvious unless you do a little homework in the background. Just a possibility. So what does Saul do? He's angry. He took a yoke of oxen, he hewed them into pieces and sent them, that is the pieces, throughout all the borders of Israel by the hands of messengers which explain the program a little more clearly. Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out with one consent. <laughs> and when he numbered them in Bezek the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. There's an interesting point here. Do you notice the division? That division doesn't happen till later. It demonstrates that the, this was written after 931 B.C., at the time of David, after the time of David, when the, 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 uh, when the uh, nation was divided. Because the houses don't divide until later. But it's, it's the, 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 the scribes writing this, uh, you know, put that in there. That'll come up in what? Second Kings. Okay. He said to the messengers who came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and told it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Thanks, guys. 
Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. And he does a surprise attack here. Saul is, is, uh, uh, has a surprise tactic. Um, the morning wa- the, uh, the uh, first watch was from 9 to 12 in the evening, and the second watch from 12 to 3. And we're talking about the morning watch here, which is from 3 in the morning to 6 in the morning, third watch in the morning. With three companies, they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they who remained were scattered so that no, that two of them were not left together. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king over the Lord, uh, king before the Lord uh, in Gilgal, where they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So that's the. Uh, Gilgal is an interesting location for this because it was the first place they entered the land. Remember in Joshua? Across the Jordan, the Gilgal, they get circumcised. Bear in mind, they'd been uns- they'd wandered in the wilderness forty years, had not kept the covenant of Abraham. And in Joshua chapter four, we you know the first major uh, foothold is at Gilgal. So it's a it's a, an emotional place for them to renew the kingship. And uh, chapter twelve, and this is where. Samuel now, see, Samuel's passed the reign. Samuel's, Samuel's no longer the, the judge, the leader. He's still the priest and the prophet, and he'll be visible. But, but the, 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 the leadership is passed to the, the new uh, captain of the, the, the country. And so Samuel is going to go through and vindicate his, his, um, his role, and, and, uh, and uh, it's, sort of, it's, a, it's a farewell address, if you will, in a sense. And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that ye have said unto me, and I have made a king over you. Now behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes with it? And I will restore it unto you. And he said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to him, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found anything in my hand. And he answered, He is witness. See, Samuel wants his report card nailed to the wall, right? Verse 6, And Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who advanced Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come out of Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. His point is they asked for it. See, they cried to the Lord. The Lord responded. That's what he's saying here. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, 
And they fought against them. They cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord said, uh, Jeroboam, Baal and, and uh, Bedan and uh, Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and ye dwell safely. So he's recounting, rehearsing, re- recounting the whole history of Israel in summary form to here. One small footnote, uh, the Badan remark is a, possibly a scribal error. It's probably uh, Abdon in Judges 12. Uh, the, the Septuagint, the Syriac record, twisted around to be Barak, Deborah's general from Judges 4. But more likely, there's an ayin. There's one little tiny mark that may be missing, which really implies that it's uh, uh, Abdon from Judges 12. No big deal, but there are occasions where there are some scribal errors in the text. We'll find a couple of those here, but this is not nothing material. Um, and they're well known. Okay, so down to verse 12. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. When the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired. Behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. He's trying to show that God is being responsive to their requests, even if it's not, you know, what God would not the, not the best choice. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king who reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But, if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? What do they choose? Stay tuned. Film at 11, right? Now therefore stand, ye, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is is not the wheat harvest today? And I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. Interesting. A um, couple of things you need to know. The rainy season in that part in, in Israel is in the winter. Uh, About March, the rainfall drops off with what's called the latter rain, Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, and so on. The harvest is in April and early May, the normal harvest. Uh, to have rain in the wheat harvest, which is late May, is very unusual. That's the, why this is a sign. It's not the normal time for rain. But to make the point, he's on one hand rehearsing the, the situation, but he's not mincing words. They got their king, but he lets them know that this is in itself uh, an act of rebellion. And to prove that he speaks to the Lord, he says, I'm going to get, you know, you know, you know, watch what the Lord's going to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? So this means this is happening late May, early June maybe. I'll call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain that, he may, that you may perceive that your wickedness is great. How? In asking for your king. 
Verse 18, so Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So he made his point. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then ye shall go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. But if ye will still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Interesting, interesting passage. Two great promises are here in the last uh, half dozen verses. Two great promises. First one is that God will never forsake his people. He will never forsake his people. Verse 22. Very key verse. God will never forsake his people. The second promise he makes is an interesting one, and again, indicative of Samuel. See, first of all, he says he will never forsake his people because he's based on God's name. What do you mean by God's name? His character and reputation. God is very jealous of his character and reputation. It's interesting to me that that's the basis by which God brings Israel back in the land today. Did you realize that? Uh, hold your place here. We'll come right back, but we'll just pop over to Ezekiel 36, I think it is. Ezekiel 36. I hope. Yeah. Ezekiel 36. From verse 17 to the end, of, uh, to, to about 25, he talks about the return to the land. Um, but verse 21, he says, But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel hath profaned. Ezekiel 36, verse 21. For I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel hath profaned among the nations to which they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy namesake which ye have profaned among the nations to which ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which is profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations to gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land, and so forth. And following this, of course, we have the dry bones vision and so on. But it's interesting, the basis of God's commitments here is not that they deserve it, it's that he's told everyone that he's going to do this. He's, his, he's got his reputation to protect among the heathen. Interesting. God's name, that is his character and his reputation, very important to him. There's one thing that God holds even higher than his name. His word. You've got it in your laps. Yes. God puts his word even above his name. And that tells you where your priorities ought to be as exemplified by the very fact that you come out here on Monday nights and whatever else you do, to get into his word, to learn his word, to hold it dear, to 
savor it, to exhaust it, if possible. Obviously, it's inexhaustible, but I mean, just to, 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 to savor it. And uh, that's, that cuts a lot of weight here with our Lord. Okay, we're on a roll. Very good. Or two promises. The other promise was that uh, not only that God would not forsake them, the second promise is that Samuel would not cease praying for them. Not cease praying for them. Interesting. It says a lot of things. It says how important the prayers were to them. It also says how much prayer was part of his ministry. Very, very important uh, example for us. Where else do we see it? First Thessalonians 5.17. Remember when we were going through Thessalonians? Pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you do it continually in a, in a contiguous sense. It means that you adopt a habit of prayer and don't interrupt it. And James 5.16. First Thessalonians 5.17, James 5.16. Okay. Now the last two verses of, chap- of the chapter, of course, are the formula for blessing. Very straightforward. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. Serve the Lord in in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He hath done for you. Samuel's talking to Israel, but God is talking to you and I. He wants us to serve Him with all our heart. Easily said. Not so easily to do. With all our heart. And consider how great things He hath done for you. Consider. Have we talked about the books of the Lord? We talked about the books of the Lord. You know, there's a lot of interesting books. You know, there's there's a books of the Lord, right? Book of Life, right? We get to the judgments. The books are opened, plural, and then the books of life. So there's at least three, because books plural are opened. The Book of the Law, it's fourth book. Huh? But the most interesting book. That you See, you and I can't do anything about the book of life. That's the Lamb's book of life. There are no deeds in the book of life. There are names. Is your name written in the book of life? If you're in Jesus Christ, it is, huh? So he's done it all. You haven't done anything except accept it. Put your name in there. Can you add anything to it? No, okay. You remember Galatians. Okay, good. We're together. There is a book you could do something about. And it's an interesting book. And you can always remember where to find it. It's in Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 3.16. Turn to Malachi 3.16. I'll find a way to put you on a work strip. See, 3.16, that has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Right? How many know John 3.16? rest of you are sleeping. How many know John 3.16? There we go. Okay. All together now, yeah. Okay. Malachi 3.16, you'll remember. Let's read Malachi 3.16. But but they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And get this, a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, okay, and that thought upon his name. See, what does that mean? It means that every time you think upon the Lord, you generate a data processing transaction. <laughs> that neat? Yeah. And I don't think they're worried about overload at all. 
I think the bandwidth is adequate. So those of you that want to run up a score somewhere, remember the book of remember. You can't do anything about the book of life. You're in Christ, you're in the book of life. Great. There's probably a lot of other things. There's rewards to earn. You can, you can, you can run races and all that. That's great. But you want, you want something easy to do? Think on the Lord. Think on the Lord. He created you for fellowship, not for service. You've got an opportunity to serve. He doesn't need you. He can find ways to get things done. The amazing thing is that he can get things done through us with our screw-ups. And if you, if you choose to pass, you know, if you're, if you're on the ship, ship heading to Tarshish rather than Nineveh, yeah, yeah, okay. But, um, but he created you for fellowship. How do you fellowship? You think on him. That's what the same is talking about here. Think on the great things he has done for you and I. Has he done great things for you? Boy, I find myself thinking back in my life, and I'm flabbergasted as I begin to realize the way he's intervened here and there and, and, uh, uh, and guided, and, and, and uh, it's amazing. And, and uh, I think he would have you do that. Just think on him. Give him credit. He cares. He's there. And he'll be there. Okay. Um, back to First Samuel 12, last few verses. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. But if ye shall do, still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, ye and your king. Okay, that seems straightforward enough. That's the formula for blessing. You can also put in your references uh, Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. We'll keep moving, but you can double back on that on your own. And, of course, disobedience did lead to the fall of the monarchy and exile. And you'll find that in Deuteronomy 28, verses 41, 63, and 64. Their failure is no surprise. God predicted it through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. They will disobey, the monarchy will fall, they will go into the Babylonian captivity, and they ultimately will, of course, go into the diaspora. And they'll be called and regathered out of the diaspora. We're watching that happen today. Dynamite. Okay, chapter 13, verse 1. Saul was, and there's some textual problems here, it literally says he was one year old and when he had reigned two years over Israel, etc. And that's obviously an error. They believe there's a, a missing number, like 40, in there. There's a textual problem. And uh, the actual number seems to have been lost. There's conjectures of 30, 40 years, something like that. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him uh, 3,000 uh, 3, men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash and in the Mount Bethel. And a 1,000 of them were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. These 3,000 are just to consolidate the headquarters at Gilgal. It'll turn out to be important here in a minute. But they, that, uh, And Mishmash, by the way, is about seven miles north of Jerusalem. Okay. And all Israel heard, it said, that Saul had smitten the garrison. Oh, oops, excuse me. Verse 3. Uh, and Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Jeba, which the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And Israel heard it said that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was held in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. 
And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. And here again, uh, they think there's a, a, a transcript error. The plane that they're on, that would really be confused. There, there may be, a, again, there's a number, uh, there's a textual problem. It may be in 3,000, not 30,000. That's still a lot. Um, small point, but we'll keep moving. Um, 30, uh, say 30 or say 3,000 uh, chariots, 6,000 foot uh, horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in Melitude, and they came up and encamped at Mishmash eastward from Bethaven. Bethaven's a strange name because it means house of evil. It may, may be a purposeful perversion of Bethel, the house of God. Anyway, uh, verse 6, And when the men of Israel saw that they were hedged in, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and, and uh, thickets and among rocks and in high places and pits, and some of the Hebrews went over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. For as, uh, as for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling. So it's, uh, it's uh, tough stuff. Uh, and um, Okay. Now, Saul's going to make a mistake here, we'll see, because he's going to intrude into Samuel's office. Verse 8. And he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Remember he told him to tarry seven days, and I'll be there? He tarried seven days. And, um, uh, and But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring here a burnt offering to me and a peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Seems straightforward enough. Samuel's late. Someone better do it. We don't want to displease the Lord. I'll offer it myself. Wrong. It came to pass that as soon as he had ceased offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Isn't that always the way, huh? And Saul went out to meet him, that he might bless him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash, therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Wow. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. That's got to be kind of a blow for Saul. That begins to, to, to give us some perception of his paranoia that follows in, in the subsequent chapters as we, as we keep moving through here, right? And um, the foolishness just is going to continue here. There's other tragedies that happen here. But anyway, here's the announcement. This is the hint that God is going to choose another. An interesting title that he gains here, after his own heart. Who's the man after his own heart? David, you betcha. Absolutely. Verse 15, Samuel arose and departed from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 600 men? I thought he had 3,000. Got the picture. Going to get clobbered. 
Saul and Jonathan's son and the people who were present with him abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Mishmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned into the way that leadeth the uh, Ophrah and uh, uh, the land of Shuel. Another company turned the way to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the border that looketh to the valley of Zeboim and toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves sword and spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his plowshare and his mattock and his axe and his sickle. Yet they had a file for the sickles and for the mattocks and the forks and the axes and the sharp and the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, were they found. And the garrison of Philistines went out to the pass of Mishmash. Let's go for it. Chapter 14. It came to pass upon that day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young men that bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. This this ravine, this deep ravine, by the way, if you're in Mishmash, you can you can still you can see it's, it's very clear where this takes place. And Saul tarried in the farthest part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people who were with him were about six hundred men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, uh, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passes by which Jonathan uh, sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sene. And one crag was situated northward over toward Mishmash, and the other southward toward Gibeah. And Jonathan said to his young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of those uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Jonathan's quite a guy. You see? Jonathan's cool. He gets to be a real neat friend of David, as you know. But even in these early days, Jonathan is a gutsy, no-nonsense guy, and his heart is right with the Lord. Hey, the Lord can use whatever's handy. See? I think that's... That's, um, that's neat. The Lord is never limited by his people's abilities. He can make up for all that. His armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart, turn thee, be, uh, uh, turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thine heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will reveal ourselves unto them. And if they say thus unto us, Tarry and stand still in our place, we will not go up unto them. But if they say to us, Come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand. This shall be a sign <laughs> unto us. And both of them disclosed themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. The Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. <laughs> Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them uh, into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up on his hands upon his feet, his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer slew them after him. And after that first slaughter, with Jonathan his armor-bearer made, it was about twenty men, within, as it were, a half an acre of land, uh, which a yoke of oxen might plow. 
There was a trembling in the host and the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. It was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul, of Gibeah, of Benjamin, looked, and behold, a multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. And said Saul, then said Saul unto the people who were with him, Number now, and see who has gone from us. And when they numbered, behold, in other words, they had a muster, yeah? And Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. Saul said unto Ahijah, Bring here the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass that while Saul talked with the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said to the priest, Withdraw thine hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. More of the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who came up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned out to be with the Israelites that with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they had heard the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto beth Aven. Now Saul does a dumb thing. I think we can still make it. Yeah, we'll make it. Saul does a rash. These kinds of vows are always rash. And Saul does a bad thing. He does he think his own ego over the needs of his men. Verse 24, And the men of Israel were uh, distressed that day, for Saul solemnly charged the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they have, and almost cost him his son, we'll see here. And all they of the land came to a forest where there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the forest, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath of Saul. See? So, but Jonathan, because he was there fighting battle, heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put, it, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. You know, he needed, he needed a, uh, 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 sustenance. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? And they smote the Philistines that day from Mishmash to Ejelon, and the people were very faint. The people flew upon the spoil, took the sheep and the oxen, slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. That's another mistake. You're not supposed to eat with the blood, right? See, it's getting worse. Okay. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord. They eat, in that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man his ox, every man his sheep, and slay them here, and eat, and sin not against the Lord in eating with blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night, and slew them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, the same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and spoil them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seemeth good unto thee. And they said to the priest, Let us draw near unto God. And Saul asked counsel of God. Oh, that's neat. Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? 
But he answered him not that day. See, there's an estrangement now between God and Saul. And uh, this is, you know, a sign of it. And um, so he, he, he's seeking counsel, but he see, he neglected to do that earlier. So God is uh, silent. Saul said, draw ye, near, uh, draw ye near here, all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. Whereas the Lord liveth, who saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there's not a man among all the people that answered him. Then said he unto Israel, Be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. The people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good to thee. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. Jonathan told him, he said, I did put, taste a little honey at the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. That's a close call, Dad. Every time there are these rash promises or these rash vows, I don't know of any in the Scripture where they don't end in, in, in some kind of disaster. So Saul went up from following the Philistines. The Philistines went to their own place. So Saul took the kingdom over in Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the children of Ammon, against Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And wherever he turned himself, he defeated them. In other words, to the south, Edom, to the east, Ammon and Moab, to the north, Zobah, to the west, Philistia. And, of course, we're going to have the Amalekites in chapter 15, and that's a special case. The, the war with the Amalekites is described very, very clearly because that's where Saul really blows it. And we'll take that next time. But he got, in verse 40, he gathered the host and smote the Amalekites and delivered them out of the hands of, of them that spoiled them. Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and uh, Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merib and the name of the younger Michael. Michael's the one that's going to be given to David later. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam and the daughter Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was a hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him unto him. Get the overtones, what's coming? But we're going, that's sort of a summary, obviously. But we're going to have in chapter 15, where Saul really blows it. And uh, that's where it, uh, uh, it, it, it really ends. And of course, that sends Samuel to Bethlehem, and we have the anointing of, of uh, uh, David following. So next time we have chapter 15, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And I assume, Alex, are you here? Yeah, are we ready? Yeah. Dr. Metherell, raise your hand. Dr. Metherell will be glad to give you a personal holographic demonstration. Um, for those of you that are, you know, not faint of heart, ready for such an experience, <laughs> be over here, right, Alex? Yeah, okay, good. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. 
Father, we just praise you. We thank you, Father, for your word. And Father, as we study Saul and we see the mistakes, Father, we would ask you through the Holy Spirit to guide us and help us to grow so that we will learn from these things, that we might be more sensitive to your leading, to your will, to your truth, to your best will for our lives. Father, we just thank you that you care so much for us, that you will be with us always, that you will not forsake your people. We thank you too, Father, that you are able to overcome all our shortcomings if we will but serve you in truth and with our whole heart. Father, we'd ask you just to help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. Be with us in this coming week. Strengthen us. Lead us. Just fill us with your spirit, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.